But if you will, take your copy of God's Word and um, open them to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15 is where we will end our series entitled Saved Today. Um, has, has, this been, has this been beneficial for you to walk through God's plan of redemption? You know, all of this, and, and, and it has for me as I have studied it, because it has brought to my remembrance some things even, even I've learned in this, and it has, it has deepened my worship that I bring nothing to the table, that I bring nothing with me, and God has done it all. And, uh, and last week we walked out, and uh, last week was a rather hard topic to preach in dealing with death and the intermediate state. And uh, I told the Sunday night crowd last week that uh, I kind of felt like I, I left everybody lacking in the area of hope that I kind of sent you out, doom and gloom, talking about death. Death is not to be feared for the Christian. It is, it is how we pass from this world to the next into the presence of God. Uh, but I can assure you, this morning, talking about glorification, if I leave you this morning depressed and lacking in hope, then something's wrong. If we can't get excited about one day these bodies being raised from the dead and being transformed to be fit perfectly to live in heaven forever, well, I don't know. I don't know what, uh, what we could get excited about. Amen? We have walked through in this series, we've walked through uh, that in the beginning when we are saved, that, that God regenerates us, that He causes us to be born again. And then when He brings us alive, uh, alive spiritually, that we see ourselves in all of our sinfulness, we see Him in all of His glory, in all of His holiness, in all of His love, and we turn from our sin and trust Christ alone as our only hope, and we're gloriously converted to Christ. And in that conversion, we are justified. We are made right before God, that He sees us legally right, and that He applies or imputes to us the righteousness of Christ that He takes our sinfulness, our ugliness, our rebellion, places all of that on Christ, takes all of Christ's righteousness and places it on us, and we didn't earn any of it. That's good, isn't it? We are justified. And then in that same process, He adopts us into His family. We become literally children of God. And we are brought to the table of God. And God says He will dine with us. And then we go through the rest of our lives in this process of being sanctified and being made holy. We are, we are holy, but we are also being made holy practically in the outworking and the living of our lives. And this process of sanctification will take place for the rest of our lives. We will never be through. That's why Paul could say, not that I have already attained, but I press on. And then we also walk through this world being filled with the Holy Spirit, being led by the Holy Spirit. Remember the picture of the wind feeling, feeling the sail, pushing the ship across the sea. And that's how we are, that God has not left us alone, that even though Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, He has left for us and with us His Holy Spirit to lead us 
to push us where we should go, to teach us, to comfort us. We are filled with His Holy Spirit. We will, those of us who are truly saved, persevere to the end, not because we are so good and we finally have gotten it all together and we'll make it all the way to the end, but because He is holding on to us. And what He has said He will do, He will do. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. And then last week we looked at what happens when we die. And when we die, we are immediately transferred, transported into the presence of God. Jesus said to the thief on the cross, Today you will be with me in my kingdom. But our bodies are left in the ground. And there's coming a day. There's coming a day when the command comes, the voice and the trumpet sounds. Jesus will come and those who are already dead, those bodies will come out of the ground. They will be raised in glory and they will be reunited with our souls that have already left and they will be miraculously transitioned from something that was perfectly suited for, he- for earthly living to something that is perfectly suited for heavenly living. Amen? I mean, that's good news. That's the work of God from beginning to end. He will bring it all to completion. Genesis 3 is not the end. In fact, the good news for the believer is there is no end. There is the culmination of His plan, but it never ends. And that's good news. Benjamin Franklin... Um, who's famous for a lot of a lot of other things, tying keys to that was him, right? Tied, tied a key to the kite string and lightning and all that. Benjamin Franklin, you know what his his epitaph on his tombstone says? Let me read it to you. I think it's pretty interesting. Benjamin Franklin, the body of B. Franklin, printer, like the cover of an old book, its contents torn out and stripped of its lettering and gilding, lies here, food for worms. But the work shall not be lost, for it will, as he believed, appear once more in a new and more elegant edition, revised and corrected by the author. By the way, honey, if I die, that would be good on mine. I would like that. I I want us to see this, this truth of glory and glorification and resurrection in a new light this morning. It's not Easter Sunday. But the truth of the resurrection is the truth all year long. We will be raised because Jesus has been raised. And let's look at this passage together. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 35. But someone will ask, How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as He has chosen. And to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly body is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. 
There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. And if there is a spiritual body, there is also a, a natural body. There is also a living, a, a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Today I want you to see Paul's explanation of what will happen in the resurrection. And I want you to see this as he is seeing it, as he is telling it to us through what is going on here in this particular situation. The church in Corinth is one that is very, very confused. They are confused on what is right and what is wrong. They are extremely worldly, extremely sinful, and extremely carnal. They don't know exactly all of what to believe. And he comes to them and he answers this question, a question that he sees as a question from a skeptic. The question he see, you see there in verse 35. Someone will say, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? This is not the question of someone who is honestly seeking an answer. This is the question of a skeptic. This is someone saying, how in the world could you ever believe in this day and age with all of our enlightenment, with all of our rational skill, how could you ever believe that the dead would possibly be raised? I mean, with what kind of body would they come forward? Do you hear the sarcasm in the question? We live in a day also where there is sarcasm in that same question. What we need is the humility expressed by Ezekiel when the Spirit of God took him to the valley of dry bones and walked him around through that valley of bones, a lot of bones, numerous bones, all over the surface of the valley. And Ezekiel says they were very dry. And God says to him, can these bones live? Ezekiel's answer is, oh God, you know. In essence, what Ezekiel was saying was, I have no way of knowing that, God, but you are sovereign. If you want these bones to live, they will live. If you want these bones to die eternally, they will die eternally. And Ezekiel just steps back and says, it is not my place to say, you are God and I am not. But we live in a day of skepticism, particularly around this issue of the resurrection. What happens after death? There's a new book out, a Rob Bell, Love Wins. In essence, what it is saying is that there is no hell anymore. That hell is really just a figment of religion of yesteryear. That it really doesn't matter what you believe, that in the end, as long as you believe sincerely, we're all going to go to heaven because there is no hell. And there's really no need to know Jesus at all. We live in a day of skepticism. We live in a day where you begin to talk about the resurrection. People have honest questions. And maybe, maybe some of us have those honest questions. One of the questions I most often get when talking about the resurrection is, well, tell me something. 
Should a person be cremated? And right now some of you are kind of chuckling to yourself because you've asked that question. Some of you right now are thinking to yourself, thinking, well, I wonder what the answer to that is. I wonder if it is right to be cremated. I would simply pose to you this question. How would it be hard for in the end for the same God who created everything out of nothing to bring that body back together when a person has been cremated or lost at sea or destroyed in an explosion or anything else? That's the faith we need to have. But I want you to see that this is a question of a mocking skeptical pagan or of a worldly Corinthian Christian. This is not the question of someone honestly seeking an answer. Paul then gives, though, an answer from an eyewitness. I tell you that he's an eyewitness because Paul himself saw the Lord Jesus Christ. That after Jesus had died, and months afterwards, Paul was on his way to Damascus and was knocked off of his horse and saw the Lord Jesus Christ risen in his resurrected body. So Paul gives this answer from, this, from an eyewitness perspective. In verse 36, he says, You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. He's restating their argument. He's giving this apparent paradox here. This doesn't make sense to them. And what they would say is, Paul, that is ludicrous. That makes no sense. What you're saying is a person comes to life after they die. We all know that's not what happens, Paul. It doesn't make any sense to them at all. No one eagerly waits on pins and needles in the waiting room of the ICU, waiting for the doctor to come out and give them news that their loved one has just passed away. No one eagerly waits for that. No one with joy waits for that. Now there may be joy in knowing that that person was a believer and they have transferred to be with God. But no one, I've never been in an ICU where the doctor came out and gave that news where the family jumped up and squealed with glee and said, Finally! Because in their minds they know it's the end, not the beginning. So when Paul here says... What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. In their mind, it does not make any sense. And if we were simply thinking with natural minds, without any gospel, without any resurrection of Christ, it would not make sense to us either. So why would Paul make such a statement? Because he was an eyewitness. He knew as well as anybody, better than anyone, that while this may seem like an impossibility, it was actually reality. And he goes on in verses 37 down through 41, and he begins to give them an example from nature. Their argument says, this doesn't make sense, Paul. This cannot happen. And Paul points to nature. Look at verse 37. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. God gives it a body as He has chosen, as to each kind, each seed, a body of its own. What Paul is doing is he's, he's saying to them, look, take into account, just look at this small seed. Look at this grain of wheat. You don't put this in the ground thinking that that 
same seed is what will come out of the ground. But what happens is you take this small piece of grain, you put it into the ground, it dies. And then it begins to sprout. It puts down roots. The sprout comes up. Before long, there is a field of wheat. We're not so much wheat farmers. We do live in, in a rural area, but this is increasingly becoming a less and less agricultural society. So maybe I need to give you an example that might connect a little more. Walk outside today and look around and see these huge oak trees. Look at these oak trees that are standing firm, resolute. Some of them huge at the trunk. And have, you, have you seen some of these trees? Probably 20 feet around if you were to stretch a tape around it. Where'd that come from? An acorn. What Paul is doing here is he's showing them that you see this happen every day of your life all around you. This smallest piece of grain will go into the ground and it will die, but it will come out in a much better, much more glorious state than it went in. Jesus made reference to this illustration in John chapter 12. In John 12, 24-25, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. What Paul is saying is that there is truth to this, and you're seeing an example of it all around you. He says, so it is with the resurrection. In verse 42, so is it with the resurrection of the dead. And this is where I want us to spend the bulk of our time today. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. This skeptical, sarcastic question, Paul's going to show them that it is anything but false. That it is true. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. Then he goes on in verse 42. He says, what is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. The word perishable there carries the idea of subject to physical decay, to dying. That our bodies, we know this all too well, are aging. That we are headed toward death. Even the smallest infant today has started the process of aging. In fact, even in the womb, when you walk up to a pregnant lady, which, by the way, I learned a while back, you never ask a lady if she's pregnant. But if you know she's pregnant, you say, well, how far along are you? And how does she answer? Well, I'm six months. I'm seven months. What she's saying is that the child growing inside of me is seven months old. As you go through your childhood years, you look forward to birthdays. Birthdays mean parties and gifts and cake and all sorts of fun. You go into your adult years and you don't look forward to birthdays nearly as much as you once did. We'll be 37 this year. 
And I can see over the horizon, the big 4-0. Our bodies are perishable. We are, we are aging all the way to the grave. Every time we look into an open grave, we are reminded that we are perishable. Every one of us have had that experience. I remember my grandfather, my, on my dad's side, his funeral, I remember walking over and taking a handful of the dirt there in East Tennessee. Just taking a handful of dirt and dropping it in on top of the casket and hearing, hearing that old hard soil just hit the top of that casket. And it was just a reminder that all of us are aging. We're all perishable. But here Paul says, what is sown perishable is raised imperishable. Imperishable is the opposite. It means no physical decay, no aging, no birthdays. You know, just to show you how my mind works as I'm studying this, I couldn't get Rod Stewart's Forever Young out of my head. And now to be stuck with you all day, see? But we will be forever young. And the obvious question that comes to mind when you begin to think about this, that one day we'll be raised imperishable, no aging. One of the questions that's probably on your mind or will come across your mind is, well then, what age will we be? What age will we be? Will we forever be the age we were when we passed away? Does that mean, if, if that's true, that there will be infants as well as senior adults in heaven together forever? Will there be young people who were killed in car accidents in heaven together? At the same age they were when they passed away? Well, the answer is, I don't know. And neither do you. And the Bible doesn't tell us. The Bible does say that we will be like Christ. And if you were to take a literal stance from that, Jesus, when he, came, when he was resurrected, they recognized him when he revealed himself to them. And so we could be around the age of 33. Some have said, Wayne Grudem in, in, uh, in his book, he speculates that... Uh, that they will be, that, that resurrected bodies will be right around the height of physical strength, which would be right around probably between 22, 26, somewhere in there. We'll be raised in bodies like that. But the answer is we don't know. But the wonder, the glory of this truth is that whatever age we're at, we will be raised imperishable. No more aging. No more. No more decay. No more death. It will all be wiped away. Death will finally, the last enemy, be done away with. Then he goes on and he says, What is sown in dishonor will be raised in glory. Dishonor carries with it the idea of being sinful. In Genesis 3, when, we, when Adam and Eve... Um, rebelled against God and disobeyed His command and took from the tree that they were not supposed to eat from, they, along with all those after them, were plunged into a sinful environment with a sinful nature full of sinful choices every day. And ever since that fall, we have been dishonorable creatures. We've been unable to fully honor our Creator as we were meant to. Now, don't you sometimes get dis distracted don't you get distracted in worship sometimes? The, 
people are up here leading and you're trying to pay attention and trying to concentrate and then all of a sudden something happens. You're distracted by something here or something there. I mean, I, I, you know, I'm as ADD as anybody. You know, I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, I have no boast. You know, it was my sin that held him there and then all of a sudden I say, because there's a piece of thread on the carpet. I should pick that up, you know. Where's that come from? It comes from this sinful world, this sinful nature that I have as a child of Adam. We are distracted in worship. We're distracted in life as we try to be completely devoted to God. Um, The smallest little things will distract us. But the Bible says, Paul here says, what is sown in dishonor, unable to fully worship, serve, and please our Creator the way we should, will be raised in glory. We will be raised in glory. The absence of sin or any other type of distraction, we will finally be able to worship God completely. And that's good. Because I want to. But I have to say, Spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. John MacArthur says it this way in his commentary on 1 Corinthians. He says, throughout eternity, our new immortal bodies will also be honorable, honorable bodies, perfected for pleasing, praising, and enjoying the Creator who made them and the Redeemer who restored them. When we get there, when we are finally resurrected from the grave, our bodies will be Perfectly suited for honoring our God. And that's good news. We will be with Jesus face to face, finally able to take him in for all of eternity. Paul goes on and he says, What is sown in weakness will be raised in power. What is sown in weakness, weakness carries with it the idea of limitation. We are limited in our flesh. We are limited in our bodies in so many ways. We are limited physically. I mean, the only thing that kept me from being a professional athlete was my body, you know. It just wouldn't let me do it. I wanted to dunk the basketball. And at one point I could, but never really as good as I wanted to. I always wanted to run faster than I could. I would get out there and we would, in P.E., Anybody hate P.E.? I used to hate P.E. We'd get out there in P.E. and and spring would come and they'd take us out to the track. You know? I was never a fast guy. They'd put us on the line and say, okay, we're going to do the 40-yard dash. (laughs) Okay, this is going to be wonderful for my self-esteem. I should have asked somebody the prom before this moment. And I would get down there and I would say, okay, this, this is the time. Now, I, the, the past is the past. Today, it's going to be good. And I would take off as hard as I could. And I would always see the backs of people running away from me. <laughs> and I would think, why am I not faster than I am? It's because this body is sown in weakness. I had a kid one time in my youth group that... Uh, Greg's down here with a broken arm, but I uh, had a kid in my youth group that uh, he was he was little. I mean, he was just small. He probably weighed ninety pounds, soaking wet. 
he wanted to dunk a basketball so bad. And, I, you know, we would tell him, look, you know, hey, you should not try that, you know. And he took milk crates in his driveway. And he stacked up these milk crates. I don't know how tall he stacked them, probably four or five high. And he climbs up on top of these milk crates and takes the ball. And he goes to jump. And when he does, the milk crates shift. He comes into youth the next week with a cast up to his elbow on both arms. We are limited in these bodies. These bodies are sown in weakness. We are limited physically. We are also limited mentally. Intellectually, we are limited. I used to want to be smarter than I am. still do. I remember sitting in class and thinking to myself, okay, I cannot sit next to the window because if I look next to the window, I will be distracted and I will look outside and I will not pay attention to class. I've got to not sit by the window. I always wanted to be smarter. I always wanted to be able to focus more. I went online yesterday, you'll be happy to know, and I took the Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grade online exam. Good news. I passed. Bad news. I got a C. (laughs) Before you judge me, go online and take it, because I don't think you'll get any better than I did. Some tough things on there. We are limited. We are sown in weakness. We are limited physically and mentally in all sorts of other ways. But the Bible here says, Paul says, we will be raised in power. With only the limitations that God sees fit for us then. Philippians 3, 20 through 21. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body. You hear that? Like His glorious body. By the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. We will be like Him. Have you ever stopped to think about what we know of of His post-resurrection body? What we know revealed in the last parts of the Gospels and in the first part of Acts. We know, John MacArthur points out, let me read it from him. He says, from Jesus' post-resurrection appearances, we get some idea of the greatness, power, and wonder of what our resurrection bodies will be like. When Jesus appeared and disappeared at will, reappearing again at another place far distant, He could go through walls or closed doors and yet also could eat, drink, sit, talk, and be seen by those who he wanted to see him. He was remarkably the same, yet even more remarkably different after his ascension. The angel angel told the disciples that this same Jesus that you see going away will in like manner come again. Philippians chapter 3 says that we will be given bodies like his glorious body. We don't know all of what that means, but part of the part of the miraculous powerful things that I think we saw him do as if it were nothing special, show up in the room behind locked doors without opening the door, all of those sort of things. I think we could infer that maybe those things will be part of who 
what our bodies are like as well. No more stacking up milk crates and sweating the 40-yard dash. We will be raised in power. And the last thing that I would show to you today in this particular text is he says, what is sown a natural body will be raised a spiritual body. Natural has the idea of being perfectly suited for earthly living. Spiritual has the idea of being perfectly suited for heavenly living. That this same body will be changed, made ready to live in heaven forever. This is not some disembodied, ethereal, spiritual existence. This was a real, tangible body. It will be a real, tangible body. Look down in verses 45 through 49. Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But this is, not the spiritual, this is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, the man of dust, talking about Adam. The second man, speaking of Jesus, is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. And that's good news. No longer bearing the image of the man of dust, our father Adam, but we will bear the image completely, finally, fully of the second Adam, of Jesus Christ. I want you also to notice that the way it is stated, the way Paul states these, that it was sown in dishonor, it was raised in glory. It was sown in weakness, it will be raised in power. It, it, it doesn't use anything different. It, it gives us the idea that the same body that goes into the ground, that God will use the very same components to make us new that he will not simply take those that old body that decays and wastes away and sweep it away and say bring me the new stuff but instead God is not simply interested in redeeming you and your spirit he is interested in redeeming all of you he will redeem even your lowly body You can stand at a graveside and reason that one day God will redeem that loved one's body from that very spot. There's an instance that happened in the Civil War. Soldiers had laid down for the night and they had all laid across the field. And in the middle of the night, a snowstorm came up and it just covered them. And the chaplain rose early in the morning and he looked across that field as the sun was just coming up and he said that it, it looked as if a, a graveyard. It just looked like a graveyard. The snow had just covered them all, laying right where they were. And they had just slept through it all. And then the trumpeter played Reveille. And all of those soldiers across that field covered in snow heard Reveille. 
they sat up. And when they sat up and they stood up, he said it was a vivid picture of what it will be on that day when the Lord comes, the last trumpet is sounded, and the dead in Christ will rise. Cremation, lost at sea, dying in some horrible plane crash. What about those? Will those be raised from the dead as well? How will God do that? How does God, how in the world would He take ashes that are scattered on the ocean that are spread who knows how far? How would He take that and bring that back together and raise that body from the dead? I wrote this out and I want you to hear it. That these are no problem at all for the one who created everything from nothing to begin with. Every particle of ash, dust, and bone lies dormant but at attention, just waiting for his command. Every particle of ash, dust, and bone lies dormant but at attention, just waiting for his command. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 16 and 17 says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of, of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Our bodies... Our bodies will be sown one way, raised another. Be sown perishable, raised imperishable. They will be sown in dishonor. They will be raised in glory. They will be sown in weakness. They will be raised in power. These bodies will be sown Naturally, but they will be raised spiritually, real bodies, tangible flesh and bone like the Lord Jesus, fit and prepared eternally for heaven. When John Piper asked a question that I think is fitting for us to ask, at the culmination, at the end of this saved series and all that we've talked about, listen to John's question. Are you so entangled with the world that leaving it would be the worst thing that you could think of? The question that I would pose over against it would be, or can you say with Paul, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain? Let's pray together. God, we come to the end of this series looking at your work of redemption looking at how you have saved us. That while we were still sinners, you died for us. And God, for those of us who are in this room right now that are confident that we have been justified and adopted into the family of God, and that one day we will have these, these old bodies resurrected fit for heaven forever. Those of us who are sure and confident in that, God, this morning, we praise You. We say thank You because we did none of it. We bring nothing to the table. Oh, yes, we 
We obey. We work out our salvation as you work in us. But God, even the power to do those things, to obey, to will and to work, is a gift from you. And so God, from beginning to end, we boast not in ourselves, but we boast in Christ alone. And God, also for those who are in this room today that are not confident, that have sat through this series, that have listened week after week about all the things that come along with redemption, and every week they've been reminded that I don't have that. That's not me. God, I pray today, Lord, that you would call them out of death and into life. Lord, I pray that they would stop looking from the outside at something that they could have because of your gift to them. God, I pray that you would call them to yourself today. Lord, I pray, God, that whatever it is that people are struggling with today, God, I pray that they would find that you are sufficient. That first and foremost, you have come to save them from their sins. And beyond that, you have come to live through them, to give them life abundantly for your own glory. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.